Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Cyber Report, sponsored by Fortress Information Security. I'm your host, Vago Marayan. Later in the program, the threat posed by the cyber surveillance technology China is exporting worldwide. But first, joining us is Nick Nyland, the new Chief Revenue Officer at Fortress. He joins the company after nearly two decades at Verizon, where he helped grow the company's federal footprint. At Fortress, he's driving to grow the company that benefited from a $125 million investment earlier this year from Goldman Sachs. Nick, welcome aboard, uh, and thanks so very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Fago. I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, it's an absolute uh, pleasure. Uh, but before we get started, our daily coverage is sponsored by Bell. Our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. And Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And our coverage of the Association of the United States Army's uh, recent annual meeting was sponsored by Safran and uh, Leonardo G, uh, DRS. Uh, Nick, thanks very much again. Uh, and and first want to start off, right, some folks in our audience may not be familiar with the role of the chief revenue officer. That's something you see more in sort of tech companies uh, and certainly in the cyber field. What's it mean? What are your priorities? And what's the experience that you're bringing the job? Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate the, again, the opportunity to be here, Vago. Uh, after serving 19 years at Verizon, building, uh, selling, engineering some of the world's most secure and reliable networks. What I wanted to do was go deeper into the cybersecurity space. Uh, and I think what the opportunity we have at Fortress is to really highlight the problem statement of insecure supply chains from a cyber risk perspective. Uh, everybody I've talked to over the last few weeks since joining this company uh, recognizes in the Department of Defense and critical infrastructure in the defense industrial base that our supply chains are just not cyber secure enough. Uh, and that's my role as uh, Chief Revenue Officer for Fortress is to expand the, uh, to make everyone aware of the risk that uh, our foreign adversaries pose against our cyber, uh, our cyber supply chains, uh, as well as continue to right. position Fortress as the leader in this space. We secure 40% of the U.S. power grid today, uh, and we are building incredible past performance in the Department of Defense. So this is a problem that's solvable, and Fortress is here to solve it. And you guys started, uh, obviously, in the power industry, have expanded with some of your guys' uh, proprietary technologies, and you pride yourselves uh, on uh, threat intelligence, where a number of your team have come and joined us on how to think about uh, the challenge. Uh, few folks have been talking as much about S-bombs and H-bombs, the software uh, bill of origin and materials and the hardware bill of origins and materials, so that we have greater visibility throughout the supply chain on vulnerabilities on the hardware on the software side. Uh, obviously, the administration has been moving hard uh, to move away from the attestation model we were going uh, toward, toward operationalizing uh, S-bombs. Uh, to get to the left of threat and intrusion, if you will, to use kind of a term of art. Um, OMB, the uh, White House Office of Management and Budget last month, gave federal agencies a year to collect software attestations and artifacts like S-bombs from government software vendors to verify adherence to uh, secure development practices. The limit is just a 270 days for critical software. Managers have got to start moving to operationalize this stuff right now, lest they miss an opportunity, right, to, to get to where they need to be. Um, how are these regulations, I mean, what do these regulations mean uh, for the supply chain coming from a company that actually has been advocating for these changes for some time? 
Yeah, I think this is a great news story for everybody in the Department of Defense and the broader federal agencies uh, that are buying uh, equipment uh, from, from the vendors. And what we're seeing is definitely a move towards a trust but verify model away from, as you said, that attestation model, uh, which will hopefully give a, uh, a better risk model for everything that our federal agencies buy. Uh, what's really next is that those these regulations need to flow down into the into the FAR, into the Federal Acquisition Regulations, so that every single um, contract officer, so every buyer, uh, really thinks about how do they assess cyber risk in everything that they buy, uh, and that includes S bombs and H bombs, but also a continuous monitoring of the risk in their entire supply chain uh, beyond first level suppliers, and so I think. Uh, that's kind of where we're seeing the regulations go. I think this is, these are good first steps, but as they get further into the acquisition cycle, I think that's going to be important. And the second piece that needs to follow from these regulations is going to be funding, right? So uh, we know that there's there's mandates. We know that there's recommendations. We know there's good policy around this uh, super important problem. Uh, the, the next challenge is, is going to be how do federal agencies pay for this ec extra requirement? Uh, and so that, that's what we're absolutely going to need to see over the next couple of years is, is funding these, these regulations that are coming out. Do, do you have a sense as somebody who's been tracking this for, for some time, and I want to get to the threat uh, uh, in, a, in a moment, but do you have any sense on what that delta is in the funding, right? Because as you said, every time you layer new regulations in, it drives cost one way or another. And we've sort of shied away from doing the right thing not to impose cost on people, uh, in part, which has imposed even more cost <laughs> on, on people. Uh, ultimately, I mean, you know, your leadership has joined us uh, for conversations in the past, and we've sort of discussed that. I mean, any sense in what this, um, you know, how much more we're going to have to spend uh, in order to get to where I think we need to be as a nation, given how important cyber is to our economic health, national security, I mean, pretty much the whole enchilada. Yeah, I think the funding is going to be commensurate with the problem, right? And the problem is large. We have hundreds of thousands of vendors in the defense industrial base alone, and we expand that once we get to the federal base of vendors. And then if we get out into critical infrastructure, it gets even larger. So the problem is large. We know that our adversaries see this as a, as a weak point. Uh, and so the funding is going to need to be commensurate with that problem. But it's also a, an opportunity for public-private partnership. Some of those regulations need to be on the vendors. In order to do business with the federal government, the largest buyer of, of services in the entire world, uh, there needs to be an expectation that you meet certain requirements. And not just that you attest to them, but you have a third party actually audit and verify and validate that you meet those requirements. And so I think this is a, a cost that can be shared by uh, private companies that are doing business with the federal government as well well as the federal government itself. Uh, and, and we both need to be uh, invested in that uh, in that cybersecurity of our supply chain. Um, I, I should point out, right, Philip Niedermeyer, uh, who is a senior advisor to the uh, Cyber Solarium 2.0 uh, Commission, you know, sort of made that point, keeps making that point every time he's on the program, which is we have to think about uh, this uh, cybersecurity as an enabler. Uh, it's, an, it's an investment. It's not a cost. And we have to get away from a cost mindset, which unfortunately we've had uh, for for too long, you know, you've been in this business for a long time. Not to date you uh, at all. Uh, where where is the threat going, uh, Nick? And where does this need you know? And how will that drive where the ecosystem goes? Say in the next five years or so. I, I think there's no hiding the fact that the world is becoming a more dangerous place. Right? We're seeing bad actors around the world. We're seeing nation states. Uh, acting poorly. Uh, and as Fortress continues to work with critical infrastructure and the Department of Defense on doing 
you know, risk assessments into the supply chain, as well as hardware and software teardowns, uh, we continuously see problems in the supply chain. We're seeing uh, code and software that, that really shouldn't be there. We're seeing hardware uh, in end products uh, that our customers are buying uh, that are coming from, from our adversaries that, uh, or from banned products list. And so uh, what we're seeing is greater intrusions into our supply chain by bad actors and, and foreign adversaries. And, and that's not going to change. We saw the comments from Putin recently on the insecurity of our critical infrastructure, and that goes more broadly into, into the federal space as well. Uh, and so we're seeing uh, increasing threats, right? And that, that's no surprise to anybody. Uh, but but I also want to go back to your point on, on regulations, right? So I think that public-private partnership, that uh, modeling on incentives and that modeling on investment in our supply chain, and that investment not just being a more robust and resilient supply chain that we saw over the last two years, uh, but a more secure supply chain. And that investment needs to happen both from the federal government as well as from, from industry that supports the federal government. And so that public-private partnership is going to continue to expand over the next several years, uh, and then, and then, lastly, I would say what we've learned in working with uh, with agencies and even in critical infrastructure companies is that while the problem is large and while our adversaries are well funded uh, and, and persistent, uh, it is not an intractable problem, right? So this is a problem that we can solve, and, and I would suggest that anybody looking at this problem not to shy away from it because of the challenge, uh, but to to meet that challenge by prioritizing the problems by identifying your most critical assets that absolutely need an S-bomb and an H-bomb, uh, meet the requirements, meet the regulations that are coming out, uh, and work with a trusted vendor, someone that's done this, someone that's been here and that has strong past performance. And, and those are kind of the trends that I'm seeing over, over the last you know, couple of years and then where we're going in the next few. Nick, uh, thanks so very much. Fairwinds following seas uh, on the new assignment and look forward to having you back on the program soon. Thanks so very much and break a leg. Thank you, Valgo. And joining us now is Bulalani Jili, a Yenching scholar and cybersecurity fellow at Harvard University, where he is also a PhD candidate. He's also affiliated with the Atlantic Council's Cyber Statecraft Initiative and is the author of an issue paper released by the think tank earlier this month, China's Surveillance Ecosystem and the Global Spread of Its Tools. Uh, Bulalani, thanks so very much uh, for joining us uh, from a Nairobi Hotel Lobby. I think that's one of the coolest places anybody's ever joined us from. Yes. Uh, uh, thank you for having me and uh, thank you for your time and consideration. Uh, indeed. Thank you for uh, joining us. Uh, it's an absolutely fascinating uh, brief where you walk us through China's uh, surveillance and cyber capabilities, uh, where China is uh, and, and where Beijing is exporting some of its homegrown as well as appropriated technology to influence Chinese uh, to expand Chinese influence, help autocrats monitor, monitor their people, what have you. Um, and it's all abetted by China's strategy that cybersecurity is at the heart of national security. Uh, and, and again, abetted by permissive laws or, or laws that favor the state. Walk us through your key takeaways and how policymakers should be thinking about China, its cyber capabilities, and the dangers it pose in exporting these kind of capabilities. What we really need to know um, is that the kind of corporate entities uh, that have supported China's domestic surveillance capacities are not simply domestic actors, but their size and influence uh, has a global reach. And so uh, these corporate actors uh, have taken um, no, their technologies and their products abroad. And now uh, these surveillance tools 
are being further integrated um, into the kind of surveillance and cyber capability uh, networks of other corporate actors. Um, secondly, um, China is not simply only offering this technology uh, to uh, actors in the global south. It is also supporting um, countries in effectively integrating these technologies. Um, and that support comes um, in a number of ways. Uh, firstly, um, it's financial. Uh, and the financing is coming through um, a number of initiatives, but specifically under the large um, umbrella uh, known as the kind of BRI initiative, which is the Falcon Road initiative, which is in effect um, um, a, a, an investment push from Beijing to further integrate its own uh, global markets uh, into the global south. But also it's a kind of a diplomatical strategy where it's aiming to further accrue its favor uh, across the globe. And then lastly, uh, it's not only simply about financing, uh, they also support um, nations across the global south with effectively training uh, certain staff, certain police forces with the use of these technologies. Um, and that's paramount in part because it's also helping the kind of um, norm-making uh, initiatives where effectively they're not simply interested only in promoting the use of this technology, they're also aiming to promote uh, the values around how the technology should be used. Um, it, it is uh, absolutely fascinating uh, how uh, the, the Chinese are, um, and, and indeed why some security agreements that the Chinese are striking, whether with the Solomons or any other nation around the world is problematic because uh, it is helping potentially autocratic governments or undemocratic governments uh, sort of better control their uh, people. Um, let me take you to the technological question. There, there is a perception that China merely steals technology or appropriates it or relies on the West in order to do that, as opposed to being regarded as actually an increasingly formidable technology generator uh, in, its, in its own right. The administration obviously is trying to impede China's uh, capabilities through export bans of chip making technology and the like. Uh, but for Beijing, cyber capabilities are a question of sovereignty uh, and, and national security. How capable is China's domestic uh, cyber and surveillance innovation ecosystem? Um, because obviously, you know, we're trying to hamstring that, but it actually might be harder to do, to do than people imagine. Um, indeed. And I think that's a great question. I think the general presumption is that uh, China is simply, you know, um, a stealer of IP is almost uh, an outdated presumption at this point. Um, and much of China's development within the kind of surveillance and more broadly technological space really has to do with a series of policies and initiatives that the state took on uh, around um, really the late 90s. And now it's kind of demonstrating uh, you know, a great sense of growth and fruition on their end. Um, and, and so you have to kind of understand the development specifically um, in the surveillance space as initial initiative really preoccupied with shoring up uh, political and social stability. Um, and most of us who you know, are familiar with kind of Chinese surveillance think of you know, the, the Great Firewall, uh, which is really you know, a consequence uh, not simply of China's, you know, um, interest in public 
stability and political security, but it's also an extension of a general commitment uh, to investing in the surveillance and cyber capabilities. Um, and so now, uh, you know, we're at a, a particular stage where they're not only um, able to effectively surveil, you know, um, hundreds of millions of people uh, every day domestically, but they're also now uh, able to effectively offer support uh, abroad to any particular nation uh, that is looking to integrate surveillance technology uh, into their political regimes. Um, and so that general kind of uh, distribution of technology is then beginning now to have consequences uh, for kind of what people are now calling kind of democratic backslide in the, in the global south. Um, and and so uh, so you know you mentioned that most of this uh, or a lot of this technology is flowing uh, to the global uh, south. What is right? I mean, everything China does is not just a financial angle. It's actually willing to lose money uh, in order to uh, gain uh, capability or to gain advantage. How does the export of this capability help China? Right? Whether it's through expanding its own global surveillance. Uh, capabilities, right? What what are all the things that China benefits from doing this? Sure, um, that's also a great question and an astute observation of China, where a majority of, of you know assessments of say the BRI or any kind of Chinese initiative, if you only look at it through the financial means uh, and the, and the financial interests involved, you kind of lose sight of the kind of diplomatic and political angle uh, that China is. Is also promoting, um, and just you know, for example, you know, the the party state utilizes multilateral institutions like the the BRICS, which is um, an emerging markets group that consists of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, and also FOCAC, which is kind of the, the forum on China Africa cooperation. It uses these kind of multilateral institutions to promote surveillance platforms across the global south and in particular um, FOCAC. And with, within FOCAC, the kind of China-Africa Defense Forum has effectively supported uh, cooperation in the areas of uh, counterterrorism, safe city projects, cybersecurity and cyber capability projects. Um, and all of this um, is effectively done with the financial assistance that's being provided by China, but also the technical and training. And all of this is done to effectively further promote uh, and legitimize its own domestic surveillance practices. Um, and so the way in which China frames uh, these technologies is a means of uh, ameliorating traditional political and social problems that many developing countries face. And so you'd, you could imagine in the context of say, you know, uh, Kenya or really across East Africa, you know, terrorism is kind of a, a key political concern and how these technologies are presented are as kind of political elixirs to traditional problems. Um, and, and that kind of uh, promotion is not simply done for the financial, uh, you know, reward uh, in, in selling these technologies. It's also done uh, as a, a means to further normalize and promote the use of these technologies, the ways in which 
uh, Beijing was accustomed to. Let, let me just take one, one minute and try to put this uh, also into a little bit of historical context, right? China will say, for example, that uh, the United States intelligence agencies, Britain, uh, others, uh, especially those who export uh, a lot of technology, also put surveillance tools within it. And the United States works with its allies and partners on surveillance capability. How is, which is, in my view, sort of a lot of whataboutism, as a general rule, what's different in how the United States does this and how the Chinese are doing it? Because I, I think most people would say there are stark differences in the way the two nations approach not just surveillance, but the export of any surveillance tools. Sure. Um, I think you're right to note that, you know, China is not the only, uh, you know, nation that is promoting the use and distribution of surveillance technologies. And so in that sense, there there is similarity. However, uh, China is unique in the sense that it uh, primarily relies on using multilateral institutions um, and more broadly, you know, uh, financial initiatives like the BRI to promote the distribution of these technologies. And so while, you know, uh, the, you know, the, the, the general distribution of, of surveillance technologies across the global south is mostly reached uh, to governments via, you know, private vendors, China's uh, distribution comes from its own domestic, you know, uh, companies, but it's also attached with a number of other things. Um, and so, when you're procuring, say, you know, an AI CCTV camera, you're not only getting a camera. You know, you're also getting training. You're also getting a loan. You're you're getting a number of things that come with this technology, and it is that kind of assemblage of things uh, that is rather unique to them. You explained that, uh, right, I mean, one of the ways the Chinese look at this is sort of bundling it into uh, capabilities, obviously, it's trying to achieve a lot of different aims uh, in in terms of how uh, it's exporting this technology. But we have the Chinese on the market. Um, Israel has been very successful with Pegasus and other uh, security tools that, that some will say are somewhat indiscriminately exported uh, around the world. And then we have the Russians also who are doing uh, the same sort of things, and in, in the process, making life difficult, making life easier for autocrats, and making life just more difficult for democracies. Um, ultimately, what does the global first? I mean, is there a nexus among these uh, technologies that exist on the marketplace? Um, are the Chinese and the Russians, for example, working together? Um, and more broadly, how does the international community counter this? And is it counterable? And if so, how? Sure. Um, well, I guess first to the to the kind of the Russia-China part of it, there's a connection in terms of how both regimes rely on surveillance tools and their capability to generally promote their interests abroad, and that and that is quite similar. You know, um, Russia this general predilection towards the use of these tools is more of a kind of a disruptive and almost chaotic nature. Um, while as for China, it's not only simply interested in kind of, you know, uh, kind of disruption, it's also really interested in promoting and legitimizing surveillance practices. And so through its kind of active participation on these kind of multilateral institutions, it's really offering 
an alternative conception on the governance of the internet and the use of surveillance tools. And so when we're thinking of, about the nexus of kind of China and Russia, it's kind of important to realize that, you know, China is kind of aiming to kind of produce a more uh, coherent alternative uh, to how surveillance tools should be used and how they should be regulated um, in ways that, you know, Russia is simply not doing. Let me ask you uh, the question of whether the Biden administration's approach of constraining technology flow to China, right? I mean, now it's chip making technology. It looks like uh, there may be some software and hardware bans uh, that are around the corner as well, in part because China imports so much uh, commercial technology that end up in its weapon systems, uh, ultimately. Does, do the kind of export bans the administration is proposing do anything to curtail China's ability to export uh, surveillance technology? Yeah, uh, I do think um, they do have a general effect, uh, particularly at the level of kind of supply chain integrity. Uh, it makes it more difficult for them to, you know, build up their own capacities at home. Uh, but that, you know, uh, obstacle does not necessarily, you know, com completely solve some of our kind of growing challenges uh, at one level. Um, China is heavily committed to building that capacity, specifically chip making at home. And, and two, it doesn't really address the question as to why these countries across the global south are relying on China to effectively not only sell, the, to sell them these technologies at a reachable price, but also then to offer kind of ideological coverage for the use of these tools in in ways that sometimes in sometimes ways that kind of undermine civil liberties. Uh, let me ask you one last question. What are some real world examples of how the introduction of Chinese technology uh, to nations, whether in the global south or anywhere else, has made a difference? Um, has has made a meaningful difference uh, in favor of the governments that have bought uh, that surveillance technology? Sure, um, you know, um, you know, just to kind of both frame it and then offer kind of a concrete example. Uh, my general trepidations around this area is not simply the introduction of these technologies into, say, city infrastructure in you know across the global south, for example, Kenya or Uganda. It's more so about the fact that these technologies come without any robust uh, checks and balances. And so it's almost China's kind of uh, uh, neutral attitude towards the introduction of these tools without considering the necessary data protection measures uh, that will preserve you know, uh, democratic practices in Kenya or Uganda. And so for example, uh, you know, uh, Chinese companies uh, and Chinese finance have supported uh, both the building and then the use of AI surveillance technologies in a country like Uganda. And in the context of Uganda, we've seen an increase in the use of these technologies to support uh, current administrations in surveilling political opposition, uh, which is then having a chilling effect on democratic norms. Um, and so that's just one example, but there are many examples that are not only beholden to the African context, 
um, you know, you hear of similar stories in Central Asia, where China also has a strong interest in promoting surveillance technologies um, and its use. Bulalani, thanks so very much uh, for joining us. Absolutely fascinating conversation and look forward to uh, having you back on the program uh, again soon. Uh, Absolutely fascinating. Great work. uh, And thanks so much for being able to join us. I know you have a very brisk schedule. You are moving around uh, and uh, have a very uh, safe trip home. Uh, Thank you. And thank you so much uh, for your time and consideration. And I hope to be back soon. Bye. Uh, Absolutely. Bon voyage.